My name is Captain Ozzy, and you're listening to the Eastern Current Podcast. I got the chance to sit down with Captain Billy Stokes of Yacht Brothers Marine. We talked about his career on the water, chasing bull redfish at night, and what it means to be a well-rounded angler. Hope you guys enjoy. Thanks for listening. Well, Captain Billy, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit down with me and talk fishing for a little bit. Um, got a lot of interesting topics to cover today. Before we jump into it, if you don't mind, um, kind of telling me how you got into the the fishing scene and where you come from and how you ended up where you're at. Okay. All right. So I started out very young, <clears throat> six years old maybe, fishing on a pier on the backside of the, on, on the sound side of Topsail Island with a cane pole, bobber, hook, <laughs> catching pinfish. And just loved it. Would do it all day. Once in a while, you catch a pig fish. Something else. <laughs> a little treat. Right. And then I kind of graduated as time went on, and I got my first rod and reel. wasn't one that I bought. It was one my dad had. It was a Fluger reel. It would be today called a bass reel. Had a, a rod that was actually made from a tank antenna, and that's how they did them way back then because that's way back then. And From like the military tank, like a tank yeah, antenna. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, how cool is that? It was. it was kind of square. And the reel, when you made a cast with it, the handle turned backwards. So you had to learn how to cast it and not beat your knuckles to death. <laughs> that is cool. So I did that. And then when I was 10 years old, uh, I bought my first rod and reel, which you've seen this up there. And it was uh, a boat rod that had been used from Western Auto, and the reel was brand new, and it's an Ocean City. And I bought it with my tobacco money, working hard, $4 a day. <laughs> and so I ended up uh, using it in the surf. I had these guys that had a, cracker, a place called a Cracker Box that was about maybe a mile from where the cottage was. And I'd... Walked down there. I carried the rod everywhere I went like some of the basketball kids do, carrying the ball. And I was in the store, and these guys were in there talking fishing. And I'm sitting there keeping my mouth shut, wide-eyed. And guy just turned to me and said, son, you like fish? And I nodded up and down, never said a word. He said, you want to catch fish this afternoon? Mm-hmm. Nodded up and down. He said, you need to be out there on the beach casting. At about 5 o'clock, everything's going to be just right. And you use this kind of rig right here, which was a fireball rig, and you'll catch a bluefish. So I was all jacked up and everything, went back to the house, got my stuff, walked across the road, went over to the beach, and sure enough, I caught two bluefish. Now, what is a fireball rig? What is that? A fireball rig has a float on two hooks. Oh. There, there are they're normally round floats, and the hook goes extended out of it. Loose so wow. to bait baits off, and it's still used today. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's called a fireball rig. I guess because they were brightly colored floats. Sure. Yeah, and then from there, my next rod and reel, my dad bought for me, and that was a Zebco eight seventy, and the rod was about nine foot long, and I was about five seven. Plugged off the pier with it all day long, just plugged and plugged and plugged, and. Learn how to catch a blue and a Spanish. And then from there, he had a boat, and then we started fishing in the creeks and the rivers and stuff like that. And eventually I ended up being on the pier as a pier jockey on the end. I did everything on the pier that you could do. 
I mean, I learned all the dynamics, where to flounder fish, where to sea mullet fish, where to plug. And I kept watching these guys coming back off the end with a king micro every once in a while, and I go, I'm going to do that. And so I was 18 years old, and I bought me a pen, Long Beach 68. Held a lot of line. Wasn't a bottom fishing reel. Didn't have good gearing in it. And uh, I fished from the last weekend in April to the last weekend in November. And October 14th, I finally caught a gang micro. Oh, man. And back then, nobody fished on the end. So the guys that taught me, uh, Ken Temple and Sergeant Dan Long, they were really good at it. And they explained me. And uh, when I got that first king on, they said, now, don't reel too hard. Don't snatch it. All the things that you shouldn't do on a pier to get the hook out. And, <coughs> and then the next year, I was the hottest thing they'd been. <laughs> so you had a hot year. I had a very hot year. I uh, I, I had a 42-pound king. I had a 53-pound cobia. I had a 9- and 8-pound Spanish in the same day. Uh had an amberjack. I think it was in the 50s. had a tarpon, 135 pounds. Is that the one right above my head? Nope, that's just a little one. That's the <laughs> that one's sixty eight. That's a little one. So for for the listeners, um, without the video and stuff, to describe this room is is unreal. Um, there there's a massive tarpon above my head. There's two massive stripers, um, Captain Billy's first fishing rod, and along with those are a couple outdoor and fishing achievements um some classic lures i mean just what a cool room to be for de- doing this podcast in um very very cool room um from the achievements to to the mounts to having your very first fishing rod i mean that's that is really cool the 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 vintage and, and classic feel that is in this room is just unreal really cool well, the first, uh, we called them rock back then. First rock I caught, I was caught on that, that rod up there with the Ocean City. Uh-huh. And the last fish I caught on it is that striper up there, just 49, 15 pounds, 49 pounds, 15 ounces. That's the last fish I caught on it, and then I decided to retire it. Hang it up. Hang it up there. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That is, that, and now, the citation right next to the striper, is that the one that goes with the fish? Yes. Wow. That is cool. That is really cool. Um, so coming off of your hot year on the pier, where did it evolve from there? From there, it went from just a couple of people on the pier mm-hmm. to within two years, it'd be 35 to 40 rigs on the end. Changed the rules. You couldn't fish two rods. You could only take one. <coughs> Excuse me. I had... I just got tired of having to compete for the fish, mm-hmm. you know. So I got in a boat and did the same thing, just about a half mile from the pier. <laughs> and then when the reel went off, it was mine. That's awesome. Yep. That is awesome. And then from from the ocean targeting kings, where'd you go? Well, actually, I went to tournament fishing for kings. Oh, okay. Okay, but I originally just fished for anything. You know, I trolled up and down the beach for Spanish and blues, and I'd catch a cobia every once in a while, and, and then stuff. Houndfish, I remember the first school of houndfish I ever saw. And then uh, a friend of mine wanted to go into the King Michael tournament, so uh, he had a fountain boat. His name was Clifton Moss, and I was his first mate. 
and we did that for a while and did okay and just kind of went from there and then I changed what I was doing in life for a living and I uh, went into another venture and didn't fish for about six or seven or eight years and then I just sold a boat and started fishing inside Pamplico Sound in a small creek boat. I wanted to learn how to catch speckled trout. Now was that the Viper? That was the Viper. Nice. That was a really cool boat. Yes. For for people who don't know, have to look have to go look that boat up. The Viper. It was very good. Um Pamlico boat for, for what you did and um very unique boat and you don't really see them anymore. No, that company don't does that company went out of business. It all it was was a fiberglass Carolina boat. Mm-hmm. Which was a wood boat. Mm-hmm. Same length and the reason I got it is the Carolina boat got a hold, so I took the got a, got the people to make me one the viper and then put the engine on it and i was back on the water yeah that's awesome so you started fishing in the pamlico what were you targeting um in the pamlico sound when you were doing that mostly speckled trout and um occasional drum but i didn't really target it It was more incidental and stripers yeah and when you say drum was it the puppy drums or those the bull drums that the pamlico is known for oh they were I, i would call them puppy drum i guess yeah Although I did put two, two bull drum in that boat, but that was just because I was after to do it. Just say I did it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you're fishing in the Pamlico, um, spending a lot of time learning speckled trout, learning striper. Um, where did flounder? It? Flounder, yeah. Uh, little unsung hero out there. Quite a many to be caught. Um, but where where did it go from there? Well, I did that while and fished some tournaments, uh, striper tournaments, trout tournaments. And then I got my license as a license, a captain. And that was when I was 51 years old, so I was on the older end of it. Mm-hmm. And I decided I'd, I'd get me an, I'm on another boat. And I talked to my CPA, and he said, if you're going to get a boat and ride it off, you're going to have to get a license. I got sheesh. <laughs> so I went through that and got my license and uh, – it was a legitimate license, time on the water and everything. I was the older person in the, oldest person in the class. We started off with 14 and ended up with seven and five passed. But it was a really good course. It was a really good course. I mean, they were there to teach, not to get you past the exam. You needed to learn it. And so I decided, well, if I'm going to do this, I just well run a trip. And that was the most nervous trip I've ever done. It was nerve-wracking, it especially was abs- number one. Absolutely number one. It was in January. I had this doctor that wanted me to take him, and then he took this doctor friend with him. And this is in the Viper. And uh, the the other guy made it a point to tell me he'd fished all over the world. Well, that's wonderful. We didn't catch fish. So <laughs> we we caught some stripers and caught some more stripers, and it was cold, and it was for me, it was a good day because the first one came in the boat. Yay. Hooray. We broke the ice. No Deep breath. Anything's better than zero. So, <laughs> yep, that's right. So that's how I got started. And then yeah. I, I ran some speckled trout trips down there until I did one one day. And I went back the next day, and the guy was where I was fishing. Mm. And that was the last time I ran a speckled trout trip. Did you hold the speckled trout a little near and dear, more so than the striper? I did because yeah. I, I was I was after a certain one and I never got it. Mm-hmm. The biggest I ever got was six and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I caught a lot of them on top water baits and I loved that. 
Yeah. Do you have a favorite topwater bait you, you throw for trout? I do. It's a Spook Junior Silver Mullet. Nice. Yeah. Love a Spook. Big fan. Um, anybody that's heard me either be a guest on a podcast or uh, host other podcasts, um, not many podcasts go by that I don't mention a Spook. If trout fishing comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, now, personally, I like the one knockers. I like the full size ones when I'm head hunting. When I'm when I'm after that, you know that thirty mm-hmm. inch ten pounder, I'm gonna be throwing the big one. But I've probably caught more citations on the Spook Junior than I have the one knocker, um, and I just do that because mm-hmm. bigger fish, bigger bait. I know elephants eat peanuts, but that that's my thought process at least. But I throw a ton of Spook Juniors. Mm-hmm. Love the silver mullet. Um, Caught my first speckled trout, first citation speckled trout on silver mullet. So I have to agree with you. I mean, stellar bait. But most of my bigger trout, my sixes and six and a halves, came on the big spook. Oh, did it? Yes. Not the one knocker, but just the full size <laughs> spook with the three hooks. Yeah. Um, and then, and do you rig those up a different way? The, I, the I doctored them up, took took the front two hooks off, and made it a two hook bait. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't tangle on the hooks, wouldn't tangle in the line when you cast. Okay. And so it you, worked well. You just clipped the hooks off the treble, or you took it off the split ring altogether? I took it off altogether and kept the oh, okay. eyes. Mm-hmm. Ran me a, a wire between the two rings. Oh, okay. And made a loop in the wire with the hook on it. So it is, I moved the hook. So it was it was a two-hook rig. That's really cool. That is really cool. And that brought more success than? Absolutely, because yeah. I, I got to use it in the water instead of having to get the foul plug back make more cast yeah yeah i definitely believe it's a numbers game yeah uh, and then that's true for even the tournament scene you know yes. he who makes the most cast most good cast um typically will come up successful now you got to be in the right area so on and so forth um but there's two things i tell everybody that steps on my boat especially if you're red fishing for the first time um he who casts the furthest catches the most redfish and he who makes the most cast yeah if you eat three sandwiches and four snacks and and your buddy don't leave the bow um he probably gonna catch more fish but you know if that's what you're after catch a couple fish have some snacks yeah and shoot the breeze with your buddies then and you had a, just as much success than your buddy who caught a couple more fish than you did but definitely casting distance and making the most cast typically wins the game i wouldn't argue that so um but jumping back into it, oh, actually, real real quick, you're talking about your first trip. It brought a story to mind. Um, my very first trip was an absolute crap show, um, or at least it was in my mind. And I, Man, I hope that those two sweet people that got on my boat hear this somehow. But I, um, so I got my very first trip and dropping in Sneed's Ferry, and around this boat ramp, there's a lot of buoys, no wakes, mile marking buoys, whatever. And um, I'm nervous. I mean, I'm a wreck. Um, trying to do my safety briefing and put their gear where it needs to be. I'm idling away from the dock, not watching where I'm going. I smoke a buoy. I mean, dead center, run it right over. You can hear it on the bottom of the boat, scraping. It pops out the other end, knocks my transducer off. And I was going to use my down scan that day until we saw bait. And, well, wasn't able to do that. And now I'm even more of a nervous wreck. Um, it was it was cold in the middle of the winter. They were a little underdressed, so I felt like they were miserable. Oh, man, I was a wreck. Long story short, we ended up getting on a pretty good trout bite, um, if I remember correctly. I think we caught 
at least a, a limit of trout and they enjoyed it and um but yeah that that first trip is definitely not gonna i won't forget about that one mm-hmm. but even to this day um full-time guiding doing it you know as, as much as i can I, there's still a nerve you know what i mean i'm a little more confident maybe and fish behavior and and know a little bit more about fish but still the nerves are there especially with new clients um that i've never fished with before um and it doesn't even have to be a paid trip if you've never fished with me before and um i don't have any you know well-known reputation but in my mind you know what i mean i i, I want to do well i want you to have a good day so those nerves are still there um but i mean you're still dealing with fish you know um a very senior captain told me when I jumped into this industry and this business of guiding, three things got to happen for a good day on the water. The guide's got to do his job. That's obvious. We got to we have to be engaged. We have to be engaged with the fishery and, the, and your your people on your boat. Or even if you're a buddy taking another buddy, you got to know you know what's going on. The tide, the bait, blah blah blah. But then the angler has to do their job. They've got to make the cast. They've got to set the hook, land the fish, whatever you're doing. Um, those two things are obvious. When those two things go well, typically the day goes well. But the third thing he said that really stuck with me, he said, Oz, the fish got to do their dang job. Um, and he kind of chuckled and it was, well, for whatever reason, that's, that's really stuck with me. Um, cause once you spend a lot of time on the water, I feel like you worry less about where the fish live and which group of fish are going to be the happiest. Um, but that's, that's just my opinion. Those words from a, a senior guy in our area, um, well, they'll stick with me for sure. Every time we find a picky group of fish, especially in the winter, schooled up redfish, I think about that. I'm like, well, the fish just ain't going to do their dang job today. And you, you got to go find another group of fish. Um, but anyways, not to derail on that little conversation, but um, where did you head from guiding in the Pamlico um, targeting stripers did you ever get into the bull drum thing yes absolutely i uh if i was ever going to guarantee a fish it would have been the bull really bull red yeah <clears throat> i actually took my boat from hoboken to cedar island my viper just to prove that i can put one in the viper that's awesome um, um what boat did you move to to do that i had a, a 19 foot stratus okay bay boat mm-hmm. that was i got that right after i got my license it really wasn't big enough to do what I wanted to, but it's all I had. Sure. So I ran the, the drum out of out of the Pampico Sound, went to this one spot all the time, and never got skunked but once. And I didn't think that was a legitimate skunk, but anyway, it was. <laughs> and I, I ran trips out of Oregon Inlet in that boat. I could carry two people, most of the time a father and son or two friends or something, and did real well on stripers. That, that was a good fishery while it lasted. Yeah. And were you were you targeting these bulls um, in the daytime? Night. Just nighttime. I started fishing. I wanted to be where I was going to set up at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. This mm-hmm. would be August, September, preferably the full moon. And um, I wanted everybody to fish and catch bait. So if they caught a bluefish, that was my preferred drum bait. So if we had fresh bait, that was great. I always took bait with me. They hit squid. I had calamari squid. There'd be one in a box. Bought it by the case and 
Van Hayden, I could go through a list of fish that I've caught drum on, so I just never felt like it was really that big a deal to just have something out there that was halfway fresh, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was a great fish for a person that's never caught a big fish, and now he's going to catch a 40-pound fish, 30-pound. I never caught one small enough to be in the slot. When you were night fishing for the bulls, they no, all were. I never caught one small enough in 11 years to be small enough to go in the slot. That's awesome. That is really cool. Um, and what did a good night out there look like? One. Yeah. I'm one. Once that first <laughs> one was in the boat, I had a guy that won a trip that I had donated to, I think, at CCA in Rocky Mountain. And he was from, I don't know how he got the ticket, but anyway, he was from Texas. I said, man, we got redfish all over the places. And I said, I didn't call them redfish. I'm too old for that. They drum, as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, <laughs> I took him. It was just me and him. Yeah. And I don't know, somewhere around nine at night, finally got that run on that reel. Got him. He said, my gracious, I ain't never seen a drum that big. I said, well, he ain't all that big. He said, I ain't never seen one that big. Thank you. He said, we can go now. Here's a $100 tip. Appreciate you doing what I'm doing. <laughs> so people have never caught a big fish. That is uh. That, that fish to me would be the easiest fish to put somebody on. Yeah, sure. And it's a good, strong fish. And if you take care of what you're doing, let him go. You're supposed to let him go. We uh, used a certain rig, a rig called an Owen Lupton rig. Barb pressed down, and I never lost a fish because it had the barb. So it, you got to fish both um, eras kind of before yes, the Lupton rig. Mm-hmm. And when they implemented that as a law, if you would kind of go over the Lupton rig and then um, the differences and, and the difference you saw in using both style rigs. Well, you used to people in the surf fish with what they called a drum rig. Yeah. And it was a slide rig, sinker rig. And mm-hmm. It had something like an 18, 24 inch leader with a hook on it. And you had a swivel and that was like 24 inches from your bait and you threw it out there and you could let line slide through it and all this. And the thing that people did and I did was you hear that reel go down, you sit there and you count to five, thousand six, thousand seven, tighten up the drag and put the build dance hooks out on it. <laughs> and then when you did that, if it stayed bench, you had him. Then you played him and fought him out. But a lot of times he was gut hooked. Mm. And uh took me a while to get used to the Lupton rig because it was a circle hook rig. And I did a video on it and I wasn't very complimentary about the, uh, the Lupton rig. But, I learned. So it just fished backwards from a fish finder rig. Mm-hmm. Put the drag to where you want it. Fish hits it until that rod starts singing and it's bent. Then all you had to do is pick it up and bring it. So he hooked himself. To, the hook would rotate to the corner of his mouth. So I'd say at least 85%. None of them, you know, didn't swallow it. Yeah. And then the other part is it is don't try to get the hook out. If he did swallow it. Reach as far down in there as you can. Cut the mono. He'll pass the hook. It'll rust out. He's got a better chance of living that way than rather than ripping his crusher out. Right, right, right. And the only difference between the Carolina or Fish Finder rig and the Lupton rig is obviously pinch the barb, short leader. Short leader, six inches. To a fixed weight. To a three-ounce wake is what is prescribed. If you look Uh on on the uh, marine fisheries, and it's six inches between the eye of the hook. And where the the egg weight is. Mm. And in the pinned weight is the big difference. Yes. It doesn't slide. Yeah. So I, I did get the chance to to use some Lupton rigs um, last, last summer. Uh, typically, I would go corking for them. 
but on a tough day when you need some bulls in the boat, um, we ended up throwing some cut-up mullet, big mullet, on these Lupton rigs. And I want to say we hooked two or three and landed one. Um, so I don't know if we did something wrong. There was definitely some learning curves being had on the boat. Um, my first impression, though, being the, one of some of the first times I've used them, not impressed, was not very happy with them. But grew to like them, mm-hmm. um, you know that just that first impression. But I did, I you know grew to like them. What I like about them, um, taking the efficiency out of it, like, and I would much more trust your opinion on the efficiency than mine. Um, seeing how you have eleven years doing it, um, but what I really like about it is it's better for the fish, a fish that you know you're going to release. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm all about that. It's just like um, the stripers. Um, when I get up into Weldon, up on the Roanoke River, you know, single hooks, no barbs, all these fish are being released. Um, so I'm all about that. Whatever, Whatever's best for the fish, if we can catch that fish next year when it comes back. Um, so I, I, I really do get down on that side of things. I think that's a, a great idea uh, to, to have that implemented in that fishery, that very unique fishery. Um, that's, that's a great idea. So that way our kids can – end up seeing what we've seen well let's go back to the rig since you said what you said about the hookup rate oh yeah yeah the efficiency rate yes that drag needs to be tight as you're going to play that fish okay on the initial strike it ought to be as tight as that you're going to play that fish at any time mm-hmm. and then he's going to be hooked gotcha. if he's able to strip the line on it and feed, the rod will bend down and it'll do the parabolic bend and then all of a sudden zzz, you start cranking, take the clicker off, and he's going to be hooked. Yeah. So we definitely did it wrong. <laughs> if the drag's too loose, then it's like fishing a fish finder rig. We fished it like a fish. Like I said, it was my first time um, fishing the Lupton rig. I was actually with an organization of people. It was like eight guides um, out taking disabled. It's called Disabled Outdoors. We take um, disabled people who have gotten dealt a bad hand. And we take them out, and for, for what we did was just bull red fishing. But right. this organization takes them elk hunting or um, axis deer or whatever the case may be. And for this event, they were going fishing for these bulls. And we, I mean, we fished hard till about lunch. No bulls in the boat yet, and was kind of the consensus um, throughout all the guides. And knew about the Lupton rig, had heard about it. But when I'm targeting these fish, I've just never used it. I am just would have kept corking. In this instance, we were getting tired of chucking these giant corks on these 35, 4,000 series reels. And um, we just needed a break. We needed to eat some lunch, leave a bait in the water. We needed a break from corking. Threw them out and not knowing anything about it. You know, like I said, there was a learning curve I had to go through. Had the drag pretty loose, um, like a fish finder or like, if you were bait fishing for tarpon or, or something like that. So that's what I did. Um, lost two. Um, ended up, you know what, actually, I've not thought about it till just now. I think I had tightened one up when he started running, tried to fight him, hand the rod off or whatever, popped. I, I may have just forgotten to loosen the bag, the drag back, um, and that's probably why we landed that that final fish. Um, one One cool aspect about that fishery, is it does take one fish to make the, you know, per angler, I would assume, 
would, that's all you need. So if you got one guy on your boat and he catches one bull drum, that's a lifetime fish, you know. Yeah. And on good days, you can, I mean, you can you can whack them on a good yeah. day or a good night. Um, but if it is a little slow and that angler only gets one fish, it was still epic. I mean, they're he won't forget it. No, I'm hard pressed to believe you'll catch another redfish like that for the rest of that angler year, you know. Um, so yeah, super cool fishery. Um, can't wait to get back up there this, this August and September, getting all fired up, just talking about it. Um, but that, that's really cool. Um, to, to, to be on both sides of that, that Lupton era. Um, and, and, but you really liked it. You thought it was a real good thing to implement. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Um, so guiding for the bulls, uh, short stint guiding for trout but really focusing on the striper um where did the where did the fishing industry take you from from there after guiding for 11 years well i went uh i fished for stripers in the ocean Mm -hmm. uh that was another good fish if you knew what to do and where to go and a little bit about how you didn't have to be good you just had they had to be there Mm -hmm. so i started off in that stratus two people Made sure it was a west wind, so it was flat. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't, you couldn't legally fish outside of three miles. And I, I got good at it. I mean, I just knew where to go, what to do. I did a lot of seminars on it, Bass Pro, stuff like that. And the number one question I got was, when you go out that inlet, how do you know whether to go north or south? I said, I looked at them gannets. If they were going north, I'm going. <laughs> They go south, I'm going south. They do it for a living. That's pretty cool. Yep. That's really cool. Um, I've often said, you know, following birds and whatnot, like, look, they fish for a living, Mm -hmm. but their stakes are a lot higher than mine. Yeah. Uh, We both fish for a living, but it's way more important for them to be successful (laughs) life or death. That's really cool. So you'd follow the gannets and and do really well in the ocean striper. I I can mark a striper and know it's a striper on my depth finder. Okay. And what year was this? Oh, sheesh. From 2004 to 2013. Was most of it just down scan your, on your electronics? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a sophisticated unit. They're getting crazy. I mean, it I mean, getting... bait. I mean, I wanted bait. No bait, I want fishing. If I didn't see something on my, on my scope, I didn't. I wouldn't even slow down. Nice. That's really cool. Um, yeah, the, the technology's gotten... Uh, now I I do have side scan, um, and I have down scan obviously. New side scan when I'm striper fishing, um, but I I feel like I know maybe a tenth of what that unit can do. Right. Like if you get somebody behind that screen that really knew what they were looking at, look knew what they were doing, it it would be be you know unreal. And there's a lot of people who who guide that way and fish that way, but. Um, that's pretty cool that you were you were able to take just the down scan in in oh four and and be very successful in the ocean and in doing that. Um did you ever tournament fish for the stripers? Only on the inside. Okay. Gotcha. I got a I did it in uh Bellhaven, the Pungo. Yeah. So they had a tournament there and some guys got up and, and I did right good in it. <laughs> There's very few better feelings than, than doing well in a tournament. I mean Knowing exactly how you stack up against other anglers, that's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then where where did the where did the industry take you after that? 
Well, during this time, I started working in some tackle shops. Mm-hmm. Um, on that side of the state? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yep. Uh, in, really in my hometown, Aiden. Uh, when I first got my license, I didn't particularly want to use funds from the family to do what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. so I got a, a part-time job at the pharmacy there in Aiden, Evans Pharmacy, and they had fishing tackle. And so I stocked the place five hours a week and gave me that money to be on the water. <laughs> and I went, cool. went from there to uh, 2004. I went to started up a tackle shop for my cousin, me and him together, Richie Gerard in Washington. Eastside Bait and Tackle is still there today, and they've expanded. And we made it go. It did good. And it didn't matter how much the wind blew or rained inside the tackle shop, you could still work. <laughs> so I wasn't getting any younger. And then from there, I went from there to Greenville Marine. Mm-hmm. And That's probably, a cool shop. Yes, it is. It, very cool. It, he's a bass guy. Joe Barnell was a bass guy. And he ended up being my mentor on how to run a tackle shop. Mm-hmm. And I was the saltwater guy. Just loved. It was like a glove. You know, fit really well. Mm-hmm. And I stayed there three years, and then I remarried, and I wanted to go to the coast, and then I worked at Eastern Outfitters, and it was a nice place. I I did a lot of different things, and it was a long drive from where I live now, and there was not a, a bona fide tackle shop in Sneeds Ferry. So I talked to some people about that, and a year later they called me up and said, are you serious? I said, yeah, absolutely. And so we started one up at Yacht Brothers, and it was a boat place for 20-some years, mm-hmm. and people still come in there and this thing, and they'll go, I didn't know y'all had tackle. Mm-hmm. It just That's just what they were known for. Yeah. To and watch that place grow here lately has been, the tackle side of things has been. A, it's done well. They're it's done knock, really well. They're knocking out the wall. We had another 30 feet in the spring. And I love talk fishing, so it's all worked out <laughs> real well. Yeah, yep. So when you were at Eastern, um, <laughs> when I started to bump into you, that was a that was a cool place. It's a really cool atmosphere, um, and still a great shop. Love Eastern Outfitters. Um, have a great relationship with them. Still a great shop. But at the time, you know, I was I think I was seventeen. You were in high school. Yep, I was in high school, and. Um, Came to pick a copy up of a newspaper because I had submitted a trout and wanted to see, you know, the picture and the article and all that. And uh, ran into yourself, and, man, I was stoked just on the, the newspaper and being in the tackle shop was always fun. And you looked at me and asked me if I wanted a job, and I was like, no way. not it. You know, in my mind, Eastern Outfitters is the the Bass Pro of this topsoil area. And, my, I mean, I was fired up. And – uh Ended up taking a job there, and, and because of that conversation and that offer, one door led to another, led to another, led to another, ended up full-time guiding. But that that era of Eastern Outfitters will always hold a special place in, in my heart, you know, because we had the coffee shop in the corner and the older gentleman who would frequent and drink coffee with you and talk of fishing and um just the atmosphere in that place was really cool. Um, that that time in life, um, I think I worked there up until right after my first summer outside of high school. And I remember I would leave my boat behind me that whole entire summer. I would I'd go fish from sun up to about ten or eleven, and then I'd work twelve to eight at, at Eastern Outfitters and and loved it. And then um, from 
8 to, you know, midnight, I would see my girlfriend, who is now my wife. The next morning, I'd do it again. Back on the water at sunrise, straight to Eastern Outfitters. Um, but, yeah, we'll always go down as a super cool time, cool place to work. You were awesome to work for as well um, and, and ran a tight ship, ran a very good tackle shop. Did That place did well, just like Yacht Brothers is doing now. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was cool. That was a really cool time in my life for sure. But um, so out, out of all of the things you've done um, from managing tackle shops, um, from, from guiding, um, is there any one thing you enjoyed more than the other? Well, I enjoy fishing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I enjoy fishing, but I always had a goal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as you've seen, I've got a few citations up on the wall, mm-hmm. and those are only my good ones. I have books of them. And I met this guy on the pier when I was young, Philip Hazen. called him Frosty, and he plugged. He was a little cantankerous, but he could fish. And uh, <laughs> he was something else. So people were all casting, trying for blues and Spanish and stuff like that, and they crossed him. He'd tell them once, you do it again, you're going to not have a lure. And sure enough, if they crossed him again, he took that cigarette and just put it on that line, and, he went, <laughs> and that was it, and he never slowed down. <laughs> but as time went on, uh, he would speak to me, and he he told me, he said, uh, man, I, I got a citation. I got a wall of citations. And I go, hmm, that's pretty cool. I wonder how long it took to do that. And basically, if he caught a citation fish, it went on the wall. It didn't matter if it was the same fish or not. It went on the wall. And I thought about that. And uh, I said, well, I don't want to quite do it that way, but I want to do it. And I really didn't do this until I moved down here, but I had acquired several. And I had a goal that I wanted to do 21 species. And I'm there. Yeah, it's incredible. The wall behind my head is absolutely just eat up with citations. Um, And it's really cool. You know, they changed the citation format every decade the picture on or or how they how they present it and just to see the change throughout the decades and and just the accomplishment on on this wall behind me is is insane it's a lot a lot of citations um and don't see a single one of the same fish maybe if i get there's probably a couple of duplications out there but uh uh there's a reason for it if there is right uh yeah, that is that's really cool. But it it motivated me. I didn't want to be a one species. I didn't want to be a specialist in this. Right. You know, I didn't want to be a specialist in offshore. I wanted to do all kinds of fishing. Some freshwater, mostly salt water, and let's just see what I could do. Yeah, that that's very well rounded. Very well rounded. Um, out of all the species you've you've targeted, um, whether it's citation or not, do you have a favorite species that you, you like to target? I'm going to redirect your question on that and say the fish that got me really cranked up was my big tarpon, 135 pounds off the pier. Mm. So I didn't want one that big. I wanted one about 40 pounds because I wanted to get it mounted. I got it mounted anyway, but it was 135 pounds, and it just 
that was the year that I was just hot as a firecracker. And I got to enjoy the limelight a little bit. And the following year, I learned that the limelight don't fine shine every year. <laughs> no, humble, no. humble pie showed up real quick the following year. <laughs> but anyway, I, I just I saw a program in Virginia where they had a master angler. If he had X number of different kinds of fish, and I thought, now that's cool. If you, North Carolina won't ever do that, but if I was in Virginia and I had this, I, I would have been the master angler. That's awesome. That is really cool. Yeah. So the fish that I like the most, <clears throat> I love to catch a grouper. And I finally got my citation grouper, and I can't believe the thing came in. I've never got it in the same year I caught it. <coughs> but I do, uh, I, I, I catch him to bring home and eat. <laughs> I don't make no bones about it. That's mm-hmm. why I want it. And I, the only reason I ever started grouper fishing, my wife used to, she and her first husband that passed away, lived in Florida, and they ate grouper every once out of Florida. I go, well, I'll learn how to catch one. And it took me two years. But I can catch one now. <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty awesome. Great table fare. Yeah. I mean delicious fish. Um uh, I don't uh I don't catch fish. I don't want to catch thirty fish. I don't want to th- not today and I wasn't that way when I was young, but today I don't want to catch thirty speckle trout. Mm-hmm. I would rather catch maybe three, four on a top water bait. If sure. I've done that, I've had a great day. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go home. More than likely, I'm not going to keep one. Right. <coughs> Would that be your favorite inshore fish, speckled trout? Probably. I don't do it as much as I used to because if I can get out in that ocean, I'm going to go. That's right. But it used to be, but I I did all right. You know, when I was in the Pungo, in the Pamplico, I wanted to see what I could do. And one year I caught 2,000 documented mm-hmm. i think i got this so it's time to move on to something else so I, i'm always moving once i get a goal and i get there i'm ready to move on to something else yeah that's awesome and you can see that progression like i said on this wall from from one goal to the next that is it is very incredible i don't mean to keep beating a dead horse but man the the, the this wall and the wall adjacent to it with the tarpon and the striper and i mean it, it is it is very very cool um but you, you touched on you'd rather catch four to five trout on a topwater lure. Yeah. Um, one thing you taught me is how you fish the topwater. Not as much how, but when. Um, and that's a simple answer. It's all the time. Um, tell, tell me about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, I prefer early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And if it's a clear day, you're going to be able to do okay till about 8.15, 8.30. When that sun gets up, that's it. Mm-hmm. Cloudy day, you can do it all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then late in the afternoon when the sun's going down, gets behind the trees. Uh, all of my six-plus-pound trout came right before dark. Right. All of them. That's a really, that's a really interesting point. I don't think I've ever made that connection Fives, I've done in the morning. Six, every one of them came in the afternoon. Wow. How cool is that? So I've seen trout do a lot of things. Um, I used to run a trip with a, a guy pro every Monday. Mm-hmm. Run from Hoboken to 
Swan Island, which is not there anymore, so it ain't no point in me telling you where it is, but <laughs> it's not there anymore. And I'd go set up, and early in the morning, I'd be there at dark. I'd run the sound in the dark. Mm-hmm. It was 16 miles. <coughs> and I wanted to be on that northwest corner. And the mullet would stream around that, that corner. Mm-hmm. And I had a trout on the spook that came up, and the water's two foot, three foot. That's it. And he came up and skied like a king mackerel. Came up, arched over, and missed it. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. Well, popped it back out there again. He didn't come upside this time, but he got it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I've only seen trout do that two other times. But it had to be shallow. He had to be able to run so he could come up. Oh, my gosh. So I've seen that. And that was cool. So he come up into the air with the hopes of falling with his mouth open onto the bait. Yeah. Wow. Either that or he missed it on the way up. <laughs> that is so cool. That is awesome. And then I fished a place in uh, in this creek, Slade Creek, out of the Punga, off of Punga River. And I fished this bank where I took that guy that time. He was there the next day. That was it for that. And the water was like two foot fishing a regular mirror lure, 50, you know, a TT or a 52. So you had to hold your rod up like that so it didn't hang the bottom. Sure. And I saw one come from about where that door is. Mm-hmm. Make the run. You could see the wake. Boom. Bam. Yeah. That was cool. <laughs> that, I did had about two or three that afternoon that did that. Man, that's pretty cool. That's really cool. Uh, when the 17 came out, it was uh, MR, Mirror Lure. It took me a while to get that down. Oh, yeah. But when I did, you just can't fish it too slow. Sure can't. I mean, grueling, gruelingly slow. That's the time that we're in right now. Um, we're so, getting, you know, our mid 40s on the water temp, and we are just, I, I tell everybody, you got throw it out, minimum five to eight seconds, twitch it, and twitch it very softly. Not very aggressive. Just a flutter. Yep, just a flutter. And then you got another three to five seconds before you do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that's if they're willing. Uh, if it gets real cold later on in the winter, it gets really, really gruelingly slow mm-hmm. to the point where you almost can't have a conversation and do what you're doing because you'll just start fishing too fast while you're talking. I, I'm the worst for that. Um, but does it ever get too cold for you to break a top water out? Yes. When is that? I don't like it when it's froze over. Top water won't work right. <laughs> so frozen is, is your limit. No, I I have caught them down to uh, 41. That's cold. That's really cold water. I, I have done that, though. And that was with a guy that we we both wanted to top water fish, and he said, Bill, look over there. One just broke. And, okay, so I threw over there, and sure enough, bang, that was it. Wow. Yeah. You definitely changed my mind about it. Um, now I'm, I don't think on an average winter that we, like I said, we don't have a freeze or something crazy happen in, in, in the ecosystem, probably not a full 12 months that go by without a top water on. I mean, August when it's dead hot, January, February, long as it's not, you know, unrealistically cold, like what, when was it? Uh, 2016 or 2018, we had that freeze. Probably put it up for a minute. You know, a lot of dead trout. I mean, cold, cold water. Waterway was frozen. 
Probably didn't really mess with it then. But on a normal year, on an average year, throwing it 12 months out of the year. Yep. And we're lucky enough here on the North Carolina coast to have 12 months of fishing. Um, there's not many other – well, there's a lot of other states, but there's a lot of states as well that don't have 12 months worth of fishing they can do. And I think we're extremely fortunate with where we're at. You know, it's not 110 degrees every day in the summer. And it's not in the teens all winter long. So it we're, we're super fortunate on that front. Um, but – I think that's that was all my questions um, for you. Your favorite favorite species and how you like to target them. Uh, you got anything you'd like to add, Captain? Sure. I I mentioned I mentioned to you before. Larry Dahlberg said there was four stages that people go through in fishing. Yes. If, if they go through all four. Yes. And I don't think most people do, nor do they, do they care to. Sure. But the number one goal in the, most people is to catch fish. Right. Those that have never caught one, they just want to have something to wiggle. Mm-hmm. Number two, they want to catch a lot of fish. That's what they want to do. They want to come back and be caught 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next thing they want is a big fish because they find out they might catch 20, they might catch 30, but where was the one they were looking? <clears throat> so now they got to think a little bit more. And so they want to catch a big fish. And then the next thing, thing is technique. What technique do you want to do? Like you like fly fishing. Mm-hmm. That's a technique. It's something that you wanted to learn how to do to be able to operate the style that you're going to do, cast it, and catch a fish on a fly. Mm-hmm. That's a technique. Jigging is a technique. Casting a top water bait is a technique. A lot of people never get to that level, and it's not a problem because they didn't. It's just they didn't choose to. Right. <coughs> so I do love jigging. I love jigging in the ocean. Mm-hmm. You take a Roscoe jig, you want to catch a sea bass right now, you go out there and get about three miles, and you'll catch all the sea bass you want to and never have to put a piece of cut bait on it. Just jig it, bam. <laughs> you feel them hit it. You feel two or three hit it on the way down, bam, bam, and then it goes, and they got a hump on their back, and that's a really good fish for that time of year. He's pretty, but I've also caught grunts and reds, uh, vermilion, bee liners. I've caught a legal grouper on that. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, and so if you go and take it another f- step further, uh, you get these uh, these rigs that fish in deep water. And you can catch a barracuda, you can catch a wahoo, you can catch a tuna, jigging. That's really cool. And so that's a, that's a technique that's cool. So to me, there's two kinds of fishing. There's passive fishing and active fishing. And basically passive fishing is bait fishing. Mm-hmm. You you put it out there. You wait for someone come come along and pick it up, like what I did with the drum and the sound. Mm-hmm. Active fishing is pat, catching a lure. You're doing something to fool the fish to hit what you're doing, and if you do it good enough, you'll hit it. That yeah, that I would have to totally agree. I think those are those are fishing fundamentals. And and to touch on those four stages from wanting to catch a lot to or something a lot big one, and then getting technical with it. Um, the beauty of it is, like we talked about, you know, he who casts the most. Success is defined on, you know, what your what your goals are, what stage in that process you are. And f- stage four is no better than the man that's on stage one, and and likewise the other way around. Um, right, like the, the, the guy, like the guy on the creek bank that's got a cricket and he's gonna catch a brim and he catches a brim. He's just as successful as the guy yes. in his mind. He's just as successful as the guy that caught a marlin. Yep. 
and and that's the beauty. I just had a, a recent conversation with a guy here in this area. The beauty of it is, is success can be defined, you know, in in multiple different ways with fishing. And of course, as humans, um, we like to oppose each other. The fly guys don't like the bait guys, and then blah blah blah. But like you said, I think I'm more hung up on just being a well-rounded angler because um, you put a fly rod in the bait guy's hand, he'll look silly, and you put a live well full of finger mullet and a strictly purest fly guy's live well, he'll probably go look silly. So there, it success is defined in, in, in whatever you want out of the sport. It's one of the few sports that is that way. Yes. There's not a scoreboard. There is not a, a necessarily a time limit or a game clock. Um, success is whatever you want out of it. Now, you can be unsuccessful in fishing just like any other sport, but it's different for everybody. And, and it, it, that's the cool thing about this community and, and, and fishing in general. And you're exactly right. I would have to agree with you. So, I've had, I know, you know, we talked before, and most of my fishing at my age is behind me. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I'd be an idiot not to know that. Sure. But I still got things I want to accomplish, so it keeps me going. Yeah. Yeah. And then and there's I feel like even inside of every trip there's something that happens that makes me have to come back. That could be a skunk, that can be the big one that got away. But I feel like I say it pretty often, I'm like that's what keeps me coming back, you know. Well, back when I used to do a lot of seminars, one thing that I had, because I had my notes and everything, it might sure. be for a different fish. I might be doing top water one place and something else, but um any day that you go fishing and you didn't learn something, mm-hmm. you wasted your day. Sure. It didn't matter whether you caught fish or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the most informative things I've learned were on a bad day. Yeah. What not to do. Because you don't learn from what you do right. You learn from what you do wrong. Yeah. I that true for so many things yes. outside of the fishing industry. That's right. Oh, man, that that is good. So that, my attitude when I go out now is – I hope we catch this or this or this. I want to do this or this or this. I go out there with attitude. Let's go see what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's it. So I can't fail. That's right. See what's going to happen. That's right. Yep. There's no place like like being on the water. Right. You know what I mean? It's 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 tough. I think as a as a full time guy, I kind of lost my right to come home and be like, "Well, honey, I had a bad day at work," you know, because I'm on the water and I watch the sunrise over the trees and. Mm I'm out and com- communing with nature. Um, it's just, it's tough to have a bad day. Surely you can have a bad day, but you got to almost try for it because it's just, it's a blessing to be out there and I, I communing so. with God's creation every morning is just, it's second to none. And, and it's well, pretty good. You get to see so many things that the average person will never, ever see. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, whales, feeding. And you didn't take a tour bus to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> something chasing a dolphin. I'm, I'm talking about a dolphin fish, mm-hmm. a little peanut dolphin, and it's an AJ, and it's behind him, and you're watching that little fish going away from him the best he can, but he ain't going to make it and get sucked up. <laughs> yep. And stuff like that, flying fish. Most people never seen flying fish. Yep. A lot of people never seen an alligator on the water when they were on the water. Right. I mean, there's so many things to see. Mm-hmm. Eagles. I know you used to look and take people to see the eagles' nest. And yeah, <laughs> in my in my first few years guiding, I was looking to make money on the water doing this in any way I could, okay. and I would still do this to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people would call me to see different kinds of birds in our area, and yeah. one 
one thing that made the trip and was the eagles. And we had, we do have a good number of eagles around here. Yeah, we and, do now, yes. Um, but it's dolphins in the waterways, another one. And then you, of course, the classic telling redfish in the marsh or, or a redfish that is in less water than his body is capable of being in his back and his tail is out of the water, you know, uh-huh. crawling redfish down the bank or its tail sticking up through some spartina grass or all of those things that no matter how articulate you are at the dock or in the tackle shop, you're not going to do it justice. You just can't. I mean, you got to be there and you got to experience these things and, you know, and having this conversation, I'm getting, I might just go hook up to my boat right now. Uh, <laughs> I might skip dinner and, and have to go fishing. I'm getting them fired up about it. I might go with you. <laughs> well, Captain Billy, I've had a blast um, talking about all these things with you. I really appreciate you taking time and sitting down with me. And I, and I can't wait till next time. All right. Thank you.